Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today as part of our Middle Brow series, I am introducing a new guest, Professor Paul Ray of Hillsdale College, an authority on political philosophy and on republicanism and on America. He is also known to me as the author of an extraordinary essay on Godfather, which taught me to respect Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo, and is the impetus behind our ACF podcast on The Godfather. Sir, thank you for joining me. Please introduce yourself for the audience and our subject of conversation today. My name is Paul Ray. I teach at Hillsdale College in the history department, but I also teach in the graduate program in political science. And I'm an old movie buff who got children and didn't see movies for a certain number of years and a great admirer of the Godfather series, of the book as well, let me add, which I think is a wonderful study of cultural difference. And from my perspective, and actually from the perspective of the author of the book, it has something of interest to say about the difference between antiquity and modernity. To put it in simple terms, the world imported into America by the Sicilian Americans represented in Godfather 1 in particular, but in the other Godfather films as well, is culturally different from America in the sense that there's a set of moral standards observed by Don Corleone in particular and that Michael Corleone has trouble coping with in an American setting that's different from the morality that we're used to. And it reflects the morality in many parts of the world, which is to say that one's obligations are to those close to one, one's kin, and those who are assimilated to kin. In Latin, you have the word familia, which refers to your family. You have the word familiares, which refers to one's friends who are assimilated to family. I was once married to a Turk, and a Turkish friend of mine, in the wake of the marriage ceremony, said to me, you have one foot in our house. Okay, a familiaris has one foot in the house of his familiaris, and the understanding of the relation of friendship is to assimilate it to family relations. Now, what that means is a good man is a man who helps his friends and harms his enemies. The dictator Sulla, on his tombstone, it said that he outdid all other men in helping his friends and harming his enemies. And if you go back and look at Plato's Republic and you look at Polemarchus, what is justice? And his immediate notion is justice is about helping your friends. And Socrates nudges him into accepting also that you must harm your enemies. That understanding of what a good man is, is really quite different from the traditional American understanding, but it lives on in certain places in the world. For example, in the Arab world, in which helping your friends, that is to say, your kin, your clan, those people closely associated with you, that outranks everything else. This is true in Chinese culture as well, and it's to some degree true in Latin America. And there are other places in the world in which this old way of looking at obligations lives on. And what The Godfather is, is in part a study of patron-client relations of the sort that involve amicitia in Latin friendship in an American setting. And the way in which the familia in the narrow and in the broader sense breaks down under the pressure of American life. 
And it's this familia that is the basis for everything that Don Corleone does and for much of what Michael Corleone does as well. Those particular movies are a study of another world that for a time was embedded in our own world. I I cannot see those movies too often. Yes, I agree with you, sir. There is an insistence in the rule of family or the rule of a patriarch of a certain kind that the law and the political community has to be even subsumed to the family or that the political community should be based on conflict between families and the alliances and intrigues that are inevitable, like we see with the five families in Godfather. Yes, And in that sense, honor and treachery, being a man of one's word and intriguing, are simultaneously necessary. And one says the truth inside the house or inside the family, but one doesn't necessarily say the truth outside. Absolutely. And that is a very different arrangement for social, not just for political life, than uh, rule of law, contract, paying what you said you'd pay and giving what you said you'd give in return for pay. And it does make for one of the few sources we have for tragedy. I don't think Hollywood has had since Godfather any tragic story that compares. And it's because of how rare this way of thinking has become or how little it is noticed in the places where it does survive. It's the alternative, however, to the modern world of rights. Yes, that's exactly right. It's the alternative to also the morality that you get in Immanuel Kant which is a morality that is abstract, and it has to do with what you owe to everyone. I can push it a little further. It's at odds with Christianity. It's an ancient pagan understanding that survives today in many parts of the world, and we are not apt to understand those parts of the world very well if we do not think about the themes of the Godfather films. One of the things I do at Hillsdale College is I ask my students in Greek history, and I ask them in our Western Heritage course when we get to Greek history and Roman history, to go see that movie and to pay attention to the theme of friendship that runs through the entire film, friendship and family relations. Yes, we could say broadly that it's so hard for us to understand it because in certain ways American politics has changed the family, whereas in other places it's family that changes politics. That's very nicely put. Professor Uh, Harvey Mansfield has a great line somewhere. He says, there's nothing about the American Constitution that requires friends and family to vote on any number of decisions from the most mundane to important decisions, but nevertheless people do. Yes. It is a way of building consensus that shows how far into society the opinions about representation and about equal rights have penetrated. And that makes it so much easier for people to relate to strangers in a friendly way. And on the other hand, so much harder for family to stay together. So there are advantages and prices to be paid. When you redefine family solely in terms of contract, breach of contract becomes very easy. It's a business relationship. It's not a relationship that defines you. In fact, nothing defines you except willful choices that you can undo afterward. So the consequence is that when the contractual model begins to invade the family, you have family breakdown on a very large scale. 
one of the fundamental facts of American life right now is more than half of the children born to women aged 18 to 34, the prime childbearing years, are born out of wedlock. Yes, and this is not the state of affairs that was, say, advertised 50 years ago. It was not something to which the nation strove by deliberate and public political process or in any other public way. It happened because people did not understand what the consequences would be of redefining the terms of loyalty and obligation. And so this is one reason learning about the old tragic stories and the old tragic conflicts can help illuminate things that otherwise happen invisibly up until the massive consummated facts stare you in the face in statistics a generation later. Right. And Godfather, it's a reminder that the way we live is not the way people have always lived in the past. And the way we live is not the way we have to live. There's another movie that I would love to touch on today, and that is Martin Scorsese's Silence. Sure. You mentioned this movie made you think about the relationship between Caesar and Christ and the fundamental conflict at the core of how we think about our personhood, our humanity. Let me start with the biblical passage. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to Christ what is Christ's. That passage introduces something into the history of the West that has caused an enormous amount of conflict and in a variety of other ways has been very fruitful. And it distinguishes the West from what came before it. I teach ancient history, but I also teach the American Revolution, and and I've spent my entire academic career puzzling about the grand transformations that took place in the character of republics between Greece and Rome on the one hand, the medieval republics in places like Florence and Venice on the other hand, and then the modern republic beginning with the United States in 1776. At the heart of the differences lies this fact. In ancient Greece and in ancient Rome, there is no difference between piety and patriotism. The city, be it Rome or Athens or Sparta or Thebes or Argos or whatever, has its own gods. And to worship those gods is to be loyal to that city. So the distinction that we draw between church and state is entirely foreign to the ancient experience. One of the reasons that the Roman emperors persecute the Christians is they will not worship the emperor, and emperor worship is a part of the patriotism of a Roman. So to refuse to worship the emperor is to rebel against Roman rule, and that is intolerable. They don't really care what the Christians believe. They care what they do, a kind of outward performance that is part of one's patriotism. Whereas what you get in the Christian West is a distinction between the political order and the ecclesiastical order, the church order. Now, I use the word ecclesiastical deliberately because ecclesia is originally the word for the ancient Greek assembly. It's a political word before it becomes a religious word. Yes. And the religious ecclesia at Athens and the political ecclesia at Athens are one and the same. But within the Christian world, especially the world of Western Christendom, there is a division between the secular rulers and the spiritual rulers. That, and it's the foundation or it's the beginning point for the reflections that lead to a separation of church and state in a place like the United States. One of the reasons this interests me is it seems to me that the separation of church and state is unnatural. It is an artifice 
It's a very effective artifice for preventing religious conflict. But nonetheless, the instinctive natural human pattern is to bring the political and the religious together. And what interests me about Martin Scorsese's silence is he's looking at Japan at a time where there have been Jesuit missionaries. They've had a considerable success in Japan. There has been a political crisis and Christianity is being persecuted. And you get a dialogue between a Jesuit missionary and a figure of authority in Japan the figure of authority in Japan is making the argument to the Jesuit missionary that the Roman emperors made to the Christians, which is to say there is no place in Japan for a religion that establishes an authority that is not political. There's plenty of space in Japan for a civil religion or a civic religion or a political religion that is coterminous with the political order. But there is no place in Japan for a religion that says there's a sphere that belongs to God, and it's distinct from the sphere that belongs to Caesar. And so the movie brings out that clash that you see in the Roman Empire, while the Roman Empire is still pagan. And it is a reminder that large parts of the world still operate on the kinds of principles that the ancient Greek and the ancient Roman city operated under. For example, I don't think we can understand China today unless we understand that the religious groups in China have to be, from the perspective of the Chinese ruling order, first and foremost patriotic. That is to say that what is owed to Caesar includes everything that is owed to Christ. And so there must be thoroughgoing supervision of religious sects. You know, in recent years, you've seen a persecution of Falun Gong yes. uh, in China. That arises from the fact that any religion that establishes an authority that is not subsumed under the political order is a threat to that political order, just as Christianity was a threat to the pagan Roman political order. The idea of a religion separate from politics is not something that the Chinese can get their minds around. And by the way, the same thing is true in the Arab world, where you have a religion, Islam, that is political down to its toenails. It's not a religion of faith nearly as much as it is a religion of political order and ritual observance. Law and obedience. Uh, yeah, and the very word Islam means submission. Americans have a propensity to project on the rest of the world their way of understanding everything. Americans are extremely parochial. We're a country of 330 million people. We look inward. And when we confront the rest of the world, we have a tendency to project our understanding of ourselves on them. People in every political regime do this sort of thing. But it's especially heightened in our case because we're so large and we don't really get to know the rest of the world. Most yep. Americans know their own little bailiwick and don't really learn about this. So the kind of political analysis that you get in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and in the federal bureaucracy is very often blind to these profound cultural differences. Yep. America um, is not just a country. It's a world. Yes. It is very and, difficult for people to conceive of any other 
And one of the great virtues of Martin Scorsese's movie Silence and of Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather movies is they bring onto the stage an awareness of these profound differences in how people see their obligations to one another. Yes, you made me think about the movie Silence in a new way. Of course, in relation to China, the Christians are uh, themselves persecuted in China, and the Chinese government is trying to take control, and to a large extent has control over Christian religion, because as you pointed out, the government thinks that it uh, runs the country and owns the country in an important way, such that there's not enough room left for people to have another kind of organization, the organization of the faith. In a way, the example of the persecution of Falun Gong is even more telling than Christianity, because in China, as in Japan, Christianity could be considered a foreign policy threat, given geopolitics and the great game between great powers. But that is not the case with Falun Gong, which is both uh, local to China and apolitical. Nevertheless, it implies that there is an authority that does not stem from the Politburo, from the communist authorities. And that implication by itself is enough to earn persecution. And so, at the political level, the movie does help you see that other parts of the world work differently. The faith in other places is a law that demands obedience and will only temporarily tolerate disobedience. But this isn't a long-term prospect and it's not a principle, it's only a concession. But in another more fundamental sense, the coming of Christianity to Japan in the movie Silence suggests this other possibility that the faith could have been extinguished. Yes, it almost was. In the Nagasaki area, where the movie's set, the Catholic faith lives on underground for a couple hundred years. It's an attenuated faith. There are no priests, but somehow it's got a kind of strength. Watching that movie made me want to know something about Christianity in Japan today, because I don't know that much about it. Christianity is a presence in Japan today. How has Japan changed? How did the reworking of Japan at the end of World War II, what's it like there now? It made me curious about a country that I don't know that much about and would love to know more about. And it reminded me of how little I know. That's the virtue of movies like Silence and The Godfather. They remind you that there is a horizon other than the American horizon. There are ways of understanding other than the American way of understanding. And from my perspective, the main purpose of studying history is to get out of one's own cave. Plato described the political regime as a cave, closed in on itself, mesmerized by artificial images that have been created within it. And it blinds one to human nature and to what other caves might be like. So one reason to study ancient Greece or ancient Persia or medieval Europe or Japan or China or Russia or the Islamic world is to be drawn out of one's dogmatic slumber. Yes, I agree. We are aware, broadly speaking, that we are creatures of habits, but we do not understand to what extent our habits are also mental habits. And yet, with most things that pass for events or news, if we were honest, we could say that both the people we dislike or disagree with and the people we like and agree with, our partisans and the other partisans, we know in advance what they're going to say and how they're going to say it. 
that's the right. extent to which even our discourse is a matter of habits of mind and that gives us a certain unity. We have our way even of disagreeing that binds us together and it's not the way we would disagree with other people from other regimes or other ways of living. Right. And so what do we do when we encounter people we disagree with from other regimes? We impose on them the framework of our own differences and we mistake what's going on. I'll give you an example. Throughout my entire lifetime, the political analysis of, say, the Soviet Union, the political analysis of Iran, the political analysis of China was always about moderates and extremists. And what that meant was we were not taking them seriously. We were not making any kind of attempt to understand them as they understand themselves. I'll take a particular example. An attempt was made by the Reagan administration to sort out Lebanon. And the notion was a show of military force followed by putting a lot of money on the table and getting the various factions around the table and working out an agreement. It was thought this would be effective. And of course, it is the very sort of thing that is effective in relations between businesses in the United States. You show your strength and then you sit down around a table and you reach a compromise and then you move on. But in that part of the world where the differences turn on religion between Druze, Greek Orthodox and Maronites and Sunni Muslims and Shiite Muslims, the differences cannot be reduced to the sort of material differences that divide businessmen. And so the whole endeavor flopped as was wholly predictable. There's an incapacity to understand the other. Yes, they think that's maybe to do with the fact that Americans assume that even if everybody's not American now, at some point in the future, sooner or later, they will be. Just yes. Look at what happened after World War II or look what happened after the end of the Cold War. We didn't all die in a nuclear fire. It's a world full of Democrats who buy American and talk American English. Yeah, so we supposed. Yes. A friend of mine who is not favorable to Donald Trump said to me, we don't have a foreign policy. And I replied, we haven't had a foreign policy since the end of the Cold War. We yep. thought we had one. And the foreign policy we thought we had was one in which the Chinese and the Russians would be assimilated to the Americans. They would enter into a world economic order that we had established and fostered starting in about 1944. And they would be satisfied with prosperity and the kind of influence that economic strength gives to a political community. And we were blind to the fact that what they were really up to in the post-war world was attempting to build up their economies with an eye to military power. And so what we're faced with right now is the fact that the grand strategy that we pursued in the wake of the Cold War failed. And it failed because we had no real understanding of the driving force behind what the Russians were up to and what the Chinese were up to. Now we're in a situation where we're awkwardly attempting to adjust to that. By the way, the same exact thing could be said about Iran. The Obama administration's dealings with Iran presupposed that putting money on the table in sufficient amounts would cause the Iranian government to opt for the American path, which is be satisfied with the territory you've got, the political strength that you've got, and concentrate on making money. 
it couldn't have worked. And of course, now it's perfectly visible that it hasn't worked. Part of the deception here is that, of course, everybody wants more property, but there's always a question of what use do you want to make of it? Absolutely. And there's a, the Machiavellian distinction between mode and order. We have ended up thinking of our own political order and our way of life in terms of certain modes, like technological advances or advances in commerce, in world trade, as if these modes impose their own order, whereas now we're beginning to see that maybe they're far more alien and less familiar than we thought they were, because the Chinese use our modes, so do other political organizations, and nevertheless, they're not at all similar to us in terms of the order they thrive on and sustain. That's very well put. And look, they fooled us because we fooled ourselves. Yes. There was this triumphalism at the end of the Cold War. We were persuaded that a new world economic order was about to emerge, and they allowed us to talk ourselves into this. They echoed our own rhetoric for the purpose of fooling us, but the fooling that really went on is we fooled ourselves with wishful thinking. Yes, weaker powers find it much easier and much more necessary to learn to talk in a way stronger powers like but it doesn't make it honest. It doesn't make it a principle. It's just a, a foreign policy. Whereas stronger powers tend to take these things for granted. Americans were not satisfied to be the most powerful country in the world. They also wanted to be loved and imitated in a way. Right. And one consequence of all of this and of our increasing blindness is if you look at American universities, in the wake of World War II, the federal government with federal money sponsored and encouraged area studies. That is to say, there was a conviction in the wake of World War II that we needed to know more about the rest of the world. Area studies at American universities has atrophied, and what's replaced it is global studies. And what global studies is about is assuming that the kind of order that we have in the United States and the kind of order that you have within the European Union is a model that will allow one to understand everything else. It's a disaster because it abstracts from cultural and regime differences that remain profound and it causes us to fool ourselves. Yes, this is again the great advantage of movies and of great storytelling, great poetry. It starts from particulars. The Sicilian family that you see in The Godfather, or you could read about in the famous book of Edward Banfield, uh, is a particular form of organization from a particular time and place for particular people. It's not global studies. It's just one part of the globe that is in part characterized by insisting on staying the the way it is, on its own partiality. Right. Mario Puzzo's book, which lies behind the Godfather series, is really wonderful in this regard. Puzzo understood, Coppola understood, and Martin Scorsese it leads me to want to see more of his movies. Mm -hmm. uh, I probably have seen more of his movies and paid no attention to the fact that they were his, because mostly I go to the movies if I go to the movies to be entertained. But Silence was not an especially entertaining movie. It's very well acted, but it was uh, pretty grim. But it was a very great movie. It captured something that people don't understand and that they need to reflect on. And it did so wonderful acting. 
it's a movie that I want to I want to take a sort of year and then I want to go back and see it again to look at the details the way the thing is put together the Godfather movies you can go back and see them again and again because it's so carefully done and so thoughtfully done Yes, and that attention to detail cannot be part of a global view that is necessarily very abstract, very sketchy, all outline and no content. Right. The other movie that I saw this year that I thought was very striking and thoughtful was uh, Blade Runner 2049. I had seen the original Blade Runner movie when it first came out, and I've seen it a couple times since then, and I looked at it one more time before seeing Blade Runner 2049. It, too, is about these kinds of differences. It is thoughtful about the different horizons within which people live and operate uh, in a way that most other movies aren't. That's true, and shows a future version of America. It's an exploration of what happens if you push certain principles to shocking consequences while minimizing others. Yes, yes. And again, brilliantly acted and brilliantly laid out. It Um, is beautiful to look at, even if what you see is often worrisome or even scary, and that's a rare achievement. And it shows certain something about the mood of learning. You, you're struck by how different this way of organizing human beings is, how different these people act, and there is something worrisome about that, perplexing, terrible. Another thing that I've watched a couple summers ago, my wife and I sat down and evening after evening, we watched Game of Thrones. We went through, I don't know, six years of Game of Thrones in the course of six weeks or something like that. It's mesmerizing in part because it too takes seriously the difference between political regimes and political cultures. You have the kingdoms on Estros. Each one's really quite different. The mentality is different. The climate obviously is different in the literal sense of climate. The climate in the non-literal sense of climate is also different. And then you have Estros, which is a very different world. There's something impressive about the imagination that was let loose on that. And the same thing can be said about what Peter Jackson did with Lord of the Rings. Again, you have different worlds and you have different mentalities and you have different regimes. And it takes seriously these differences. Yeah, that is an achievement, and I think the rise of this kind of fantasy in visual media suggests that, to some extent, the uniformity of American life, and at least public America, hurts people in a way or leaves them wanting something else. Worlds that are very richly described and that try to put together, as you pointed out, the climate, it has an effect on people, on their strengths and weaknesses, on their virtues and vices and therefore helps bring up certain human types, and others are absent. Yes. It seems easier in these particularized circumstances, although fictional, to bring out psychology, human types, the varieties of human nature, and our only access to human nature, actually. And it seems like people are looking for certain self-knowledge and for certain fictional pictures of things they admire and things that scare them, of hopes and fears that have to do with who we are. Right. This is what literature has always done, really great literature. Certain of the movies and certain of the television series, we we seem to be living in the era of the television series now, are exceptionally good at bringing these things out. 
Now, most of the movies are really pretty awful, but, you know, my suspicion is most of the movies always were pretty awful. Uh, yeah, I and think that's that true. the standouts, you know, I, I know the movies of the 30s and 40s. I think what I know are the really good movies of the 30s and 40s. And there were a huge number of movies in the 30s and 40s that were just plain awful. And yeah, I've never heard of, of them. <laughs> of course. I would qualify that in two ways. One of them is that mediocrity isn't always as bad. Right. And the other one is that I find it much easier to name a lot of great directors and writers working in the 30s and 40s than now. Not all ages produce quite as much greatness. I'm pleased that there is greatness and even good stuff that's not great in our age as well, because we do tend to have a bias in its favor. It's more recognizable and more familiar. Yes. Sir, thank you for yeah. joining me on this conversation. Oh, and 